Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hello, I'm Lisa Hudak. As CFO of Kittles, my goal when searching for a new technology partner was to make a long-term strategic investment. In today's market, you aren't just buying software, you're investing in innovation, in partnership, in customer experience. Converting a legacy top 100 system is no easy task, but the Storis team was definitely up to the challenge. Beyond their technical expertise, they were attentive to our every need. They helped us with the daunting task of change management. And they led us every step of the way with a keen understanding of the retail furniture industry. At Kittles, our customer experience, our special order merchandising strategies, and our business intelligence initiatives set us apart. We've positioned Kittles now with modern technology to facilitate our growth. Discover more on Storis.com today. Welcome to this week's edition of On the Record. My guest this week is Jason Phillips of the eponymous Phillips Collection, although the Phillips Collection is not named for you just yet. It is, in fact, your father's company who it is named after him. However, um, you have been involved now for about 10 and a half years. And I know from previous discussions that you're starting, well, let's go back a step. How did you get involved in the business? Did you, when you were a little boy, say, I want to be a furniture designer when I grow up? Or was it organic? How did you get involved? Good question. I think it was not, I don't think any young uh, boy or girl grows up saying, I want to do furniture design. There could be a fascination for it, but mine was more in the traffic. So the company was actually founded the year I was born, back in 83. and. yeah, I grew up taking trips to Southeast Asia, and for me at that time, it was a little bit more about going to the zoo and, and being at the beach, but taking trips to some of the vendors and, and not only seeing what people can do with their hands and the pride they had in making something, but also just how remote these places were and how special it was that my parents somehow had these relationships. And from a young age, I knew that their company was going to the beat of a different drum. And we were a different company back then, but always with the same focus on being unique. A lot of people say they're unique in the marketplace, but if you look at a Philips product, I think you can start to get the sense of what I'm talking about, you know, intentionally disrupting um, design. So from a young age, super interested in what mom and dad were doing and realizing there was, uh, that it was fun. They were having fun. How old were you when you took your first trip? Five. And so when you went on that first trip, did you get to go along everywhere to the vendors or were you kind of, you got to stay at the pool and play and go to the zoo and do the fun things and then dad went off uh, on work? Yeah, it was pro- it probably progressed over the years. It was probably 80-20, you know, pool and zoo versus work, but certainly uh, three hour car rides to go to the next you know, island and definitely intermittent visits to the factories. and going to Mexico at 10 years old and then by the time I'm 15 I'm still in high school I'm studying fine art and starting to you know play around with designing or tweaking a piece or two on these trips so it definitely became something 100% focused on work in my teens. So it was in your teens where you kind of made that transition from this is a family we're going on vacation to this is a business and I want to play. Yes yep. 
So what things did you do to may help yourself make that transition? You mentioned studying fine arts. What did you go to college for? Was that also in, in line with the intent of being in the business? Yes, I went to school in Michigan, uh, studied industrial design, and there was a certain mentality uh, or a certain desire of mine to, to get involved in, in big design fields, uh, perhaps be an architect, uh, perhaps go into car design or shoe design or something fashion related. Uh, Phillips Collection was a small company. It wasn't, we're not a giant company now, but we've grown a lot. So it wasn't this um, idealized, oh, I'm going to join the Phillips Collection, have my silver spoon. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't this magnet drawing me as I got into college, but I think as, as my education progressed and I was certainly creative, I realized, A, mom and dad could probably use my help or make sure that they know there's some legacy involved, otherwise maybe change their plans for what to do with the company. And B, it just seemed like what other career as a recent graduate would I be able to take product development trips to Asia, showcase the collection at shows around the world, visit Europe for inspiration. Like, I knew that I had an opportunity that I would regret not taking advantage of. So come graduation day, I had already known I was going to move to North Carolina. The company was founded in New York. It relocated while I was in school. So literally took my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, down to High Point, where we have lived since 2005. A romantic uh, relocation from yes. New York to High Point. She tells me that one night after going to the bar, I promised her that if we didn't like it after a year, we'd move. And how many years ago was that? Yeah, that was 14 years ago. I, I, you can't hold me accountable for what I say <laughs> after a night of drinking, <laughs> right? So um, you're actually a furniture designer on your own. You have designed uh, several award-winning pieces, both arts awards winning and pinnacle awards. How many all to, and I, and I know you're humble and you don't want to say this, but I'm going to ask you any, because it's called on the record. I'm going to ask the question, how many awards? Uh, overall, uh, a good amount, uh, maybe 20 or 30. Uh, I'm most proud of arts and pinnacle, because those are closest to where I am in the industry. So for Product Designer of the Year awards for arts and maybe a dozen plus Pinnacle awards. Now you also have tried to be active in the industry. You were involved with um, the ISFD. Yeah. You were past president of the ISFD. Why get involved in an organization like that? What's um, what's the goal of participating in the industry at that level? When you're young and you have ideas and you get approached by mentors saying, we'd love you to consider joining this board, it's very flattering and you get there. And I early on realized if you raise your hand with an idea, you're in charge of that task. That's why a lot of people stay so quiet on these <laughs> boards. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed networking. I'm, I'm an ambivert, so not an introvert, not an extrovert. I will regress to kind of being more private, but the... Being a Phillips, working at Phillips Collection, it's forced me to be an extrovert, and I, I do enjoy spurts of that. So I enjoy sharing my thoughts with business leaders and gleaning from them as well. So I've joined not only industry boards, but also um, interests that I have closer to my heart, like the Enrichment Center in Winston-Salem, helping special needs adult artists. I feel like I've been so fortunate in my career uh, definitely not a silver spoon. I, I came into the company when we were small and struggling and trying to reinvent ourselves. Uh, but we've grown a lot, so I'm in a position now to to give back to 
you know, students and mentor them when I found at the time that I needed mentors, I didn't have them. So playing my small part in the industry to, to kind of affect some changes. So let's talk about the um, migration into the family business. Obviously, you were kind of organically involved from a very young age, but at some point after you graduated college, that's a more um, structured, I would think, kind of an entry into the company. At that point, there needs to be a role created or some kind of function. How did your, what was your role and your initiation into the company like when you first got here? I came in uh, doing sales for the company for three months and we lost our sales manager three months in so I became a 21 year old sales manager of having 50 people work under me and I didn't do a great job at it but that was really my first job at the company kind of above where I should have started but it was kind of hurry up and hurry up and learn what, what the heck to do here. So came into the company, uh, struggled for a long time, for many years about uh, how the staff, the established staff, uh, felt about me being a part of it. Always talked to them about it, talked to mom and dad about it, and I think I'm more of a worrier, so they were saying people aren't looking at it like that. Just work hard, prove yourself. You can't change the fact that you have this last name. So just work as hard as everyone else, be the first one in, last one to leave, and that's what I did. Um, in terms of working your way in, into that role, uh, what were some of the things, if you were to give, if this Jason Phillips were to give some advice to that Jason Phillips back when you first got here, what would you tell him? Oh, you would have, this would have saved me a lot of therapy. Just, <laughs> just calm down, I think. I'm a hard worker and a worrier. Uh, now you might talk to me and think I'm not quite a, as much a worrier, but that's trained. So come in with a positive attitude, ready to do work every day, and you'll be successful. There's a lot of luck and circumstance and timing involved, but if you come in with a positive attitude and work hard, try to affect change within a company, do your job. Uh, I think you'll get respect and you'll thrive. So it's unusual, most of us go to work, we go to work for strangers, mm -hmm. and then we have our family relationship separate. You come to work and you work with your family. Um, I'm sure you are a perfect son. Yeah. I'm sure you are an absolutely perfect employee and always have been. Um, <laughs> But I guess at some point there probably was a time where your father had to have a coaching conversation or the two of you had to have a conversation. What was that like? How did, that, how did he handle that? How did you handle that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's ongoing. So uh, I was talking about therapy before. Now this is the father-son. Um, the constant uh, tweaking but with love. So there have been plenty of serious conversations Dad and I have had over the years. Uh, I think there was years ago more of an urgency for my 22-year-old ideas to be the, the new direction of the company, learning that not only do I need to resist doing that because I'm so young, but also have patience. You need experience. You can't rush experience. Uh, but even to this day, so we've had those big talks, and even to this day, he'll give me a tweak here or there. And I've learned more recently than you might think, this wasn't an early on realization, that uh, it's all out of love. You know, he's not missing the bigger picture by telling me I should say this differently in the meeting. Uh, but it's always out of love, and, and over the years I've come to learn how much he respects my contribution. Uh, so face-to-face -face he will tweak, critique, uh, 
again, all with love, but that's the side I get face to face, and then behind my back praising me. Um, so I'll take what I can get. That's a, still a pretty good deal. That sounds a whole lot better than the reverse, right? Yes. Praising you, yeah, you I'll take that and knowing going behind yeah. you. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, exactly. But I, I would wonder, and, and uh, I guess at some point we'll have to have him on, because I would love to get his take on what that feels like. And the reason I say that is, at this stage of my career, I view it from the father's standpoint. And I remember having to deal with my son. And when my son was young, um, I would never coach him in baseball. My brother-in-law would, and I would take his son. And we would swap, because if I said something, it was stupid. If my brother-in-law said it, it was like the heavens had opened up and God had spoken directly so to true. him. Yeah. And I suspect that your father probably had the same thing, right? That he would want to say you something. And as you say, say it with love. It always comes from a place of love. Yeah. Um, so. All right. And I had the, um, my grandfather helped mom and dad start this business. Actually, grandma and grandpa kind of were the Mark and Julie Phillips before Mark and Julie became who they were. So grandpa gave dad a very hard time. And I, whenever I remind myself of that, it changes my perspective. It also makes me think, is this a unbreakable mold or should it even be broken? Because I have a four-year-old son now. I'd love him to join the business. And Am I going to push his buttons the way dad has pushed mine at times? So, but again, it always comes back to, to being grateful to be able to work with my family. You know, I'll constantly be rejecting them for dinner dates just because I see them all day long. Uh, they can't get enough of their kids, I guess. Something I'm learning now as a father. But uh, just starting to get to a point where, you know, what's... Let's be grateful for where we're at, and I think you're going to get to this at some point, but what's going to be that transi transition uh, when the day comes that he retires, and, and how am I going to bring my son into the business without overpressuring? Well, I guess your dad probably has uh, some successful advice on that since he seems to have managed to bring you into the business. You seem not to have felt any pressure to do that. You seemed to be enthusiastic about that. Is that how you would describe it? Good point. I've never thought about that. Yeah, no pressure. No pressure. Maybe maybe the dangling carrot of look at how amazing this could be, but never any guilt if I wasn't going to join. In fact, like in anyone's career, it's not always rosy. And in bad times in business and maybe perhaps personal relations with the family, I've threatened that I'd leave. And, uh, you know, also being happy for me to be happier elsewhere. In our family, I would call us pretty crazy. I think other people would just think that we're nice or funny. Uh, but there's, uh, there's been, when business is not good, that's when your true colors come out. And we were struggling for years. Uh, business has been, fortunately, very good for us for the last 10 years. So it's kind of like what would happen if things kind of fell off. But right now, it's kind of fairy tale. We come in, we don't step on each other's toes. Good industry respect, profitability. Uh, so we're on a roll right now and kind of just cherishing that. Yeah. When you, it's funny, when you say we're on a roll, it kind of sounds like that's accidental, but there's been an enormous amount of hard work to lay that foundation. I mean, you have a very clear identity in the marketplace, a very um, clear point of view. How would you describe, and do you think, how would your father describe that Phillips point of view on the marketplace? What makes you unique? We want to make our customers fall in love with the product. 
And our customers are the furniture stores, the designers. They're ultimately reselling to somebody else. So really, it's that end consumer. We want to surprise them and amaze them, have a story to tell about the product. These are pieces that are not uh, what other people are doing. Uh, if we're on trend, it's by accident, I think. Uh, we go to the beat of our own drum. We have an eye for what we do. It's organic. It's contemporary. It's marketed in a fun but sophisticated way. And it's just so different from what anyone else has. So if somebody, you can't convince somebody to buy a Philips product. You just expose it to them, tell them the story, is it in their budget? And then they get it and it becomes the jewelry of the room. It's, it's what people walk in and they're about to say something else to you and they say, what is that mirror? You know, what is that lamp? I need to know more about that. That sounds a little bit like how your father got you into the business. Kind yeah. of exposed you to it, let yeah. you see the beauty of it, let you experience it, let you form your own conversation with it, mm -hmm. and then you were hooked. He didn't study design. He would never call himself a designer, but I think 99 out of 100 people would. He says he has a curator's eye, and this comes from a background. Uh, grandma and grandpa were fine art dealers at one point. They were in the garment business, sourcing fabrics from overseas, uh, had a shop in Brooklyn selling women's dresses to Bloomingdale's. And they started collecting ancient art, and that became their business. And through understanding iconography and what makes a, a Hindu face more beautiful as a, as a 12th century sculpture, helps train your eye for beauty and almost restraint in design. And I think that's translated into his ability to, to have a good eye for things. And then mom is an architect, I studied industrial design, so we're all working on this team but with distinctly different concentrations, pulling together what I think is curated and sophisticated and he deserves all the credit for, uh, for what you see today. Now a lot of what you see today is things that probably the average consumer or even the average individual would walk by in a jungle or a forest and see a dead log or um, a muddy hunk of wood or uh, a rock. Mm -hmm. How? What is involved in seeing something that is essentially an ordinary object that 99 out of 100 people would look at and go, yeah, it's a hunk of wood, but seeing something else in there, is that learned? Is that innate? I mean, where does that come from? I think seeing beauty in things is innate. I think learned is how to take that to a level of commerce. So we have learned that marketing is key. I think a lot of people know that. You can have the same product as somebody else if you market it better. Uh, it doesn't have to be better. In our case, I, I, I think our some of our pieces are extraordinary and it's not you know apples to apples. Uh, but the way you market yourself and tell your story. If you, if you have an honest story and it's transparent, uh, exploit that. So yeah, I, I love nothing more than the fact that we've taken buried logs and turned them into high-end art that, that appears in some of the finest homes around the world. This is through making something desirable. So this is the story of reclamation, the excitement about making something that some people might walk past, turning that into art. Uh, and then it's, it's getting it to someone's home as affordably and well-packed as possible. That's the meat and potatoes part of it. Found something we love, we can buy it at the right price, but sometimes it's heavy or voluminous and you have to get it onto a truck, bring it here. If it's big pieces of wood, it, it needs to dry for a year. We have to deluxe it in, in our own uh, in-house spray studio. 
and you know successfully get that into someone's home and it's such unusual product we're not working with the same factories other people are so a successful product at Philips probably had growing pains for a few years just in terms of working out the kinks of production According to Boston Retail Partners, 94% of retailers have or plan to implement a unified commerce platform within three years. Retailers understand the importance of technology to gain a competitive advantage. At Storis, we understand that a conversion can be challenging, but our experienced team is a true partner in the process. Planning, communication, goal setting, and collaboration are hallmarks of hundreds of retailer conversions successfully completed by the Storis team including three top 100 retailers in Q2 of 2019. If you're ready to make a strategic technology change, Storis is the industry's trusted partner. Learn more at Storis.com today. I'm Caitlin Jaszewski. Thanks for listening. Take me through a, a process of one of those trips. You're walking through what it, I mean, right down to what are you wearing? Where are you going? I mean, is this, you are you literally trekking through a forest? Just. Pick yes. any one of your trips and, and kind of, for people who are listening, what's that like? I'll tell you about Indonesia. It's a fascinating place. We source in Thailand, Philippines, and Indonesia. But Indonesia is something like 17,000 islands, and there are a few main ones, uh, but we're literally island hopping. And you fly into Jakarta or Surabaya. These are big, bustling cities, traffic, pollution. Uh, and then you take these many-hour car rides into the jungles, where you could be stuck in one lane for three hours because there's a wreck. Uh, but when you finally get there, you're usually in a dirt floored facility with hopefully some running water for the people that live there. And, and uh, you see the inkling of an idea. So petrified wood is something prevalent in Indonesia. I think we've mastered that market. And we saw a couple miscellaneous stumps. We said, well, where do you get these from? they took us to the resource that supplies them. And they work with people that bring things from the mountains to there. So here we are kind of getting deeper and deeper, metaphorically and literally, into the jungle uh, to learn more about petrified wood. Okay, how much do you have access to? What kind of colors does it come in? Consistencies. And you make a lot of mistakes in the beginning. You know, every stool needs to be 17 inches high. They can't be these miscellaneous heights. And, and they're 300 pounds. Is there a way to core out the inside to make them lighter? Uh, so there, uh, it's not a designer's paradise in terms of being able to sit down with a sketchbook and, and work things out on the ground. It's more of an exploration. Come back with your photos, meet with your design team, come up with instructions. And we didn't have agents years ago that were boots on the ground, English speaking. So this was a lot of making collect calls, flying out just to make sure production was working. Now we're at a point where we see a factory, we have agents who know how to go out and accept and uh, assess it and then QC it the whole way through. That is trekking and jungles and mosquitoes and you know perhaps no electricity for a day and a half. Always amazing food. Uh, and then to the other extreme, we're working with a very proficient factory in the Philippines where it really is a designer's dream house. They have 10 clay workers on site where you have an idea in the morning, you're seeing close to a prototype at the end of the day. Do you see that model continuing going into the future? Do you see it evolving? If I were to ask you the same question, come back, let's say 10 years from now, what do you think the answer would be? Yes. 
but not with the current resources. So the gift and curse of what we do is we find small resources, unexplored capabilities, and if we have success with it, those resources get bigger and bigger and become factories. We're always on the hunt. We need reliable, large-scale factories, but we're always on the hunt for the next small resource. We intentionally seek out these kind of unsung heroes and capabilities, these mom-and-pop shops that we could hopefully end up giving them big orders down the road. So I know we're going to get to it, where's the company going to evolve to, but I always want to stay true to what we're doing. So it's this constant upcycling of small resource, let's do something special with them and kind of groom them into a full-scale production operation. How small is too small? I mean, how small, are, 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 when you say a small resource, what, what are you talking about? It's, uh, that's a great question. I'm thinking specifically about a resource. It is a single person, a man, brilliant artist. We've carried this product for a few years now, and he does small handicraft little animals, but with these really cute faces and using driftwood and these, these materials that he only has access to found pieces because he doesn't have enough money to buy you know, nice new clean pieces of timber. Uh, he has not been able to evolve into the next iteration of himself that we need him to be at. You know, it's great to get an order for 300 pieces of a, of a wooden cap, but not great when you can't fulfill it or it takes 12 months. And that's what happens. So it doesn't matter how big you are to start with, you have to have the brain for business. And I'm somebody that's artistic first, and then the business was trained. Whereas dad, I think, was the opposite. Dad has that business mind naturally, and had to develop a curator's eye. I, I believe in the power of people, and I think if somebody's gifted in one respect, they probably have shortcomings elsewhere. But less, let, let's be less pessimistic about that and more about there's unlocked human potential everywhere. So you might be more creative and you have to train the, the business side, but that's what it comes down to. It's not about the size of the operation. We can, walk we can crawl before we walk with some of these suppliers. It's can they scale up. So what things have you done to strengthen your business side? Me personally? Mm -hmm. Oh, for, uh, within my own uh, sense of business? Uh, Shadow Dad, really. I think he's one of the best negotiators out there. Uh, I think he has great vision and can step really far away from the company. Uh, I admire uh, the skills that come with age, you know, being able to... I. It's impossible for me to have ridden waves of financial successes and failures, these things that take many decades to, to really know if a trend has started and ended and, and the life cycle of things. Uh, but being conscious of this, I'm, I'm a thinker. I think I've become uh, quite good at the business side of things and I enjoy it. I, uh, I also love managing. You know, I manage our sales force. I train new employees here in the office. I think there's some there's amazing creativity in a team and getting that thing humming along. Product designers, it's it's you can work on a team, but there's also a very personal, artistic, almost selfish side of it. You know, if I do a design by myself, I don't really want anyone tweaking it. That's my artist side. But the business side says, no, get the feedback, ask the reps what they think. If, if nine out of ten people don't like it, you probably shouldn't make it. Has there ever been anything that you just absolutely loved and you took out there and it just went, yeah. excuse that noise? Yeah, uh, many times, but I did this, uh, we deliberately 
work with nature's colors, so metals that are shiny and aged, and, and woods, and all these natural finishes. So there, there ends up not being a ton of color in Philip's collection. You're not going to see pink just because pink is popular. But I brought in this, this piece of wood that was dripping in candy apple red paint. And I thought it was great. I thought, what a great evolution. We take the organic, we make it super contemporary. Uh, it was almost laughable. So that was a big shock. And that was earlier on. So you, so you learn from each of these things, right? Candy apple red, not a popular color. There you go. Speaking of things that you've learned, you talked about when you first got here having to manage a sales team and really being very young to do that. Just a second ago, you mentioned how much you now enjoy managing and coaching and teaching your team. What, um, what changed? How did, what evolution did you have? Have you studied management books or do you have people who've mentored you? What was that evolutionary process for you of becoming someone who enjoys managing? Management books, no, but I probably should. Uh, mentors, for sure. Uh, even people that might not even know they're a mentor, like a Bob Marisich. Uh, I see the way I've seen him engage with his team and he really gives them latitude. I mean, that's the side I see. Who knows what goes on behind closed doors, but um, mentors are super important. Um, I hated managing at 21. I don't even know if a 21-year-old should be a manager. I think there are certain positions, even if things come to you naturally, you kind of have to sweat equity, you know, work your way to it. So no, I was terrified that I had to get on the phone with sales reps talk to them about their performance. Let's just pretend that at 21 I knew all the ins and outs of the company. You know, I didn't. So, uh, you know, having to, to constantly talk to people and, and with managing, it's like you have to water it. Um, I never like looking at people like talking about people like their children, you know, or a plant, even the analogy I just gave. These are people. So I can call every rep every day and there aren't enough hours in the day to do that and that's a little overwhelming. Uh, Having to conduct sales meetings in my 20s was nerve-wracking. Having to talk in front of a room of people. What I think I've learned and what's contributed to my success, my, my modest success over the years, has been confidence in yourself. Uh, talent and intellect are two things that you either have or you don't, but confidence, uh, being able to uh, feel like your opinions matter, like you have good ideas, uh, hard work, uh, that you just have to prove, that takes time. But the confidence to say, okay, I'm young, but people are gonna have to listen to me, um, how do you kind of work your way into that? So. How do you deal with coaching conversations yourself when you have to sit down with somebody and, and have a conversation? Are there things that you learned from your own experiences growing up in the business or? Yeah, that's hard for me too. I don't think it's fun for anybody. No, I, you're not a nice person if you enjoy that, unless you really know that it's gonna help the person at the end of the day. So I hate conflict, but I know you've, you can't dance around a point. So I'll lay it out there. If I'm having an issue or somebody needs to improve, you gotta say it. And say it early on, and then I immediately go into constructive solutions for that. And why this is gonna be important, and I'll probably apologize for having to have told them that. Uh, and it's also the person on the other end, are they good at receiving criticism? You know, oftentimes I'm sugarcoating something to somebody that's like, I totally get it, I blew it. We're good, thank you. And other people that might you know, have a mental breakdown if you 
say one, one little adjustment to that. So it's hard, and I'm 35. I'm nowhere near where I... I'm kind of excited for where I'm going to be at 50. I, I want a glimpse of that because I, I just feel like I've got a handle on what you need to do to be a good manager right now. And that's just um, having faith in human capital and empowering them. I could think I'm going to be the best in 110% effort on whatever I put my hands on, but that's not as good as three people that can do it half as good as you, right? So take advantage of the talent around you. Don't take ownership for great ideas. Uh, just be a team player. Um, so I think in the last even five years, I've matured a lot in that sense. You know, if you interviewed me five years ago, I would have been a head case. <laughs> what do I do? Dad's criticizing me. He's not making my designs, and now just looking at it a little differently, taking a step back and coming in with a positive attitude every day. Let's get some stuff done. You mentioned a little earlier, and my guest this week is Jason Phillips from the Phillips Collection. You mentioned earlier that you don't, the company, doesn't always think of itself as on trend, meaning you're not looking at what's trending in the market. But there is certainly an evolutionary nature to the, the evolution of your style, right? How does style, how do things change? If, if you're not looking in terms of, okay, this is the hot color, this is the hot style, what are the, the benchmarks or what are the, the milestones? What are the things that make style evolve for the Phillips collection? Yeah, we certainly do pay attention to what's happening around us. I think it's not designing with blinders on that it's got to be pink, you know, or it's got to be oversized. So it's hard to tell you where inspiration comes from. Uh, you know, I personally love the automobile industry, not only how sexy a car can be from the outside, but the materials used on the inside and the care taken to how it sounds when you close the door and how, you know, how much ambience of the engine you want to hear or not. And I'm getting pretty specific, but um, I'm sure that that influences my design. If we have a drawer in a product, how does it sound when it closes? So we constantly have to evolve. And where, to, to answer your question, where's, how does Philips evolve and what might be next for us? Uh, we're even looking at the types of customers we can access. So Philips has always been a medium to medium high um, side of the market, but we're, we're finding uh, it's lovely to play in the super high end and do fully chrome dining tables that might retail for $15,000, but at the same time we have tables that retail under $899. So I want our product to be accessible to maybe not everybody, that's a little too far-fetched, but to a very wide segment of the market where you can run into us on social media, we were talking about this before, and then not be inspired and delighted and then ultimately disappointed, but ultimately end up with something from us in your home that you keep, that you love. Uh, Phillips, back to my earlier point, and I think any company that wants to do something bigger than sales has to have the end goal in mind. You know, I was, I was really shaken by one thing Steve Jobs said, why he's more successful than his competitors. It's not about I want to I want to sell a million of these music devices. It's I want to empower people to be able to listen to the songs they love wherever they are in the world. And it's things like that. So Phillips wants to surprise and delight and have a story. And at the end of the day, when you walk into your house, it's not just another lamp that lights up the newspaper. You say, wow. You, know, you fall in love with it all over again. And 
why can't furniture and artwork be like that and be more accessible than you know collected curated art gallery pieces so I want Philips product to to have that feeling of fine art but to have that meat and potatoes ability to, to purchase it or save up and be able to purchase it I think that's a good place to wrap it up you okay. just perfectly defined where you see the company and where you would like to take it thank you thank you so much for having me thanks for taking the time yeah. I appreciate it